Good evening and welcome to You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. This conversation is part of the What's Next series of roundtables hosted by the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Minnesota. My name is Megan Mell and I'm the Director of Alumni Experiences and College Events at the College of Liberal Arts. To begin, I first want to acknowledge that the University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It is important to acknowledge the peoples on whose land we live, learn, and work as we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with our tribal nations. We also acknowledge that words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for our American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. This evening's conversation is part of a series of roundtables to address the important question of what's next for us to eliminate institutional and systemic racism in society. The series uh, seeks to engage experts from the College of Liberal Arts, as well as our community. Our moderator for this evening is Professor Rose Brewer. Professor Brewer is an activist scholar, a Morse alumni distinguished teaching professor and past chair of the Department of African-American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota. She has affiliated appointments in sociology and gender women and sexuality studies. Professor Brewer publishes extensively on black feminism political economy, social movements, race, class, gender, and social change. Professor Brewer's books and edited volumes include the award-winning The Color of Wealth, the U.S. Social Forum, Perspectives of a Movement, and several other co-edited volumes, including in 2019, Rod Bush, Lessons from a Black Radical Scholar on Liberation, Love, and Justice. Her current book project examines the impact of late capitalism on Black life in the U.S. Professor Brewer is a College of Liberal Arts Dean's Medalist, a member of the Academy of Distinguished Teachers at the University of Minnesota, a winner of the American Sociological Association's Distinguished Teaching Award, and a Josie R. Johnson Social Justice Award recipient. Professor Brewer is also a founding member of the Black Radical Congress, the People's Strike, and a founding board member of Project South Institute for the Elimination of Poverty and Genocide. Professor Brewer, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Megan. Uh, had a little bit of a slowdown with uh, unmuting and getting my video uh, going, but thank you for that uh, very warm introduction. I am uh, so excited to be on uh, this Zoom uh, this evening with this most important conversation. Uh, I, I'm just really moved by our frame. Uh, you've got to be carefully taught. Our classrooms are where our children get their social lens. And if there's ever a time for our young people to have very critical social lens, uh, we're in that moment now. Uh, as all of you know, these are difficult times. Uh, they were difficult before uh, the pandemic, uh, the Floyd uprisings here, and this very uh, tumultuous election season. In our conversation this evening, we'll place black students at the center of our discussion although uh, the discussion impacts all of our students. We will open the conversation uh, with our panelists speaking briefly to the issues and then uh, with uh, targeted questions after their opening uh, remarks. I often like to draw upon uh, the wisdom of bell hooks, uh, so relevant for uh, this evening's conversation. And bell hooks asserts, 
that the classroom remains uh, the most radical space of possibility in our educational journey. For years, it's been a place where education has been undermined by teachers and students alike who seek to use it as a platform for opportunistic concerns rather than as a place to learn. And we know the significance of making it a place to learn. So she adds her voice to the collective call for renewal and rejuvenation in our teaching practices, urging all of us to open our minds and hearts so that we can move beyond uh, the boundaries of what is acceptable so that we can think and make possible the greatest thought, creative vision of our students. Let me uh, introduce our stellar panel uh, for this evening and I will introduce them in the order uh, that they will speak, uh, beginning with Dr. Brian Lozinski, who is an associate professor of urban and multicultural education in the educational studies department at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. His research explores the intersections of critical participatory action research, black intellectual traditions in education and cultural sustainability. Prior to pursuing his PhD, Dr. Lazinski taught for over a decade in his hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then St. Paul, Minnesota. As a teacher and educator and researcher, he has worked with other educators, parents, schools, and districts to develop perspectives and strategies that aspire toward social justice while moving us toward illuminating the historical realities that have created the current educational disparities. Uh, Brian is uh, very active in uh, the community engaged with uh, the network for uh, the education liberation, the solidarity network and many other organizations. Uh, following Brian, uh, we will hear from Ms. Kimberly Colbert who began her career in education as an educational support professional, ESP, for St. Paul Public Schools. After earning her master's in teaching from the University of St. Thomas, she worked one year as a theater specialist in Minneapolis and returned to St. Paul as a high school English teacher. Kimberly won the first was the first person of color, uh, Afro-Asian, uh, to be elected to the National Education Association's Board of Directors, representing Educational Minnesota, and continues to be actively involved in uh, educational efforts for equity and justice. Vernon Rowe is the principal of Northeast Middle School in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He has worked for uh, the Minneapolis Public School for 26 years as a social studies teacher, for eight years as an administrator at the middle and high school levels for 18 years. Vernon has also served as an adjunct professor in the educational leadership public schools uh, at uh, Concordia University. Prior to joining uh, Minneapolis Public Schools, Vernon worked for Monsanto Agricultural Company in sales and marketing from 1991 to 1994. He received his BS degree from the University of Minnesota in economics uh, and St. Cloud University in education. Uh, he received his MA from St. Mary's 
University. He is currently uh, the principal, as noted, of Northeast Middle School. And finally, we have uh, Dr. Courtney Bell. Uh, and Dr. Bell, if I can locate her uh, bio, is um, one of four children uh, born um, onto a astonishing mother and matriarch, uh, Tasha Bell Wooden. She is the founder and principal consultant of Courtney S. Bell Consulting and works to co-create educational equity solutions with pre-K through 12 educational institutions. Courtney was raised in the Sumner neighborhood of North Minneapolis. Growing up on uh, the Northeast of Minneapolis afforded her the opportunity to attend North Community High School. In the fall of 2007, 2007 Courtney went on to attend the University of Minnesota and uh, wonderfully uh, pursued and completed her PhD in 2019. So we have the stellar panel uh, for us this evening. I'm going to turn uh, to Dr. Lozinski and ask him uh, to set the table for us regarding uh, the things uh, that guide uh, this evening's conversation. Brian. Thank you so much, Dr. Brewer. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm honored to be part of this distinguished panel. And I'm, I'm definitely honored to call myself a student of Dr. Brewer, as I know uh, several of us on this panel are. And so, um, you know, everything that I'm, I'm saying is part of the kind of education that, that I received uh, working with Dr. Brewer. Um, so I'm gonna uh, start my remarks this evening um, with this, you know, focusing on this idea of what we've been confronting or what we're confronting um, by asking the question of um, what did we think would happen, right? What did we think would happen when we've constructed a society that prioritizes profit over all human and non-human uh, costs, um, that has continued the commodification of, of our ecosystems, uh, our, our lands, and continued the exploitation of labor of the vast majority of the population. What did we think would happen when we constructed a school system in every, uh, in every urban and rural setting that, was, uh, that would reify and would continue to support these kinds of logic of, um, of capital at all human and non-human costs. Uh, I think we're confronting the realities of uh, the, you know, the very natural consequences of that kind of thinking. And if we continue that kind of thinking, we do it to our peril. And so when I look at um, what's happening with regard to the continued degradation and, uh, and violence against black communities, when we're looking at the wildfires and the eco ecological disasters, when we're looking at uh, you know, rape culture and all of the things that continue to proliferate, um, and no, also noticing that this is a bipartisan project, right? And so, uh, you know, although we live in uh, a country that's 
uh, run by an egomaniac white supremacist, um, we cannot just put it all on the back of, of Donald Trump. This has been uh, the deindustrialization of this country um, and, and the, uh, the um, disinvestment in, in communities of color has been going on for, for quite some time. And so what we're looking at are the, are the consequences of these logics. Now, one thing that we're faced with today is with regard to education specifically, and that, that's, that is the focus of my own work and my study, is we're focused with education at the threat of harm for, for all of us and for all of our children. And I have three children myself. And these, these questions confront us, right? What is the risk of an educational project versus the reward? And more and more, the reward does not seem to be worth the risk. And so I look back to my own lineage and my own heritage um, and the, the experiences of black folks in this country. And this is not a new question. Black folks have always had to answer the question of what is the risk versus the reward of education. And the reward had to be a causal connection to literal freedom for the risk of life and limb to be worth it. Because we go again back through the histories of black education. We know, uh, you know from its earliest moments when uh, education was literally outlawed by state statute to uh, up through uh, the Jim Crow education systems when black folks were continually confronted. And we know the Little Rock Nine uh, in their attempt to integrate uh, you know, their high school back in the 1950s was threatened with lynching, right? This continues and this psychological violence has continued to confront us. So we've actually answered this question about what is, what is worth the reward. Um, and so that's what I want. That's actually, so I'm going to wrap up my, my time here, but that is what's still confronting us. And, is it, and what now we're seeing is the rest of the country has to answer that. And so I would encourage everyone to look to the black liberation struggle because that's where the answers to these current questions can be found in terms of the risk and the reward of education. Is it literally pushing us towards a freedom struggle or is it continuing to oppress us? So I'll, I'll stop there because I know I'm at time. Thank you, uh, Brian. Um, Ms. Rowe, uh, share your thoughts with us on this, uh, on this issue, if you will. Am I up to you all? Okay, I thought I was third, but I could go second. I always okay. have something. Um, Dr. Brewer, I just want to sit back and I want to say, you know, thank you, um, not only for this opportunity to introduce me, but at the same time for all of the teaching that you've given me. Um, and, and, and I appreciate that. And then to be a part of this panel of so many distinguished folks that, you know, probably have a whole lot more, you know, degrees and all kind of stuff behind their name than I do. Um, I just I just feel honored and I want to say thank you. Um, as I, you know, listen to um, Dr. Lewinsky, uh, did I say that right? Luzinski, right? I think it's Luzinski, okay. Um, speak. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that came to mind to me, um, being in administration as long as I have been um, in Minneapolis public schools, was that there was a, a statement that was made by a mentor of mine, um, and God rest her soul, 
Um, it was Dr. Barbara Sizemore, who was a professor at DePaul University. And what she said to me was that when we make educating African-American kids our priority that everyone else benefits. Um, and I've just been in my job in terms of doing what it is that I'm doing, I'm trying to prove that correct. Um, and, and, and being the principal at Northeast Middle School, a school you all that if you know the history of Minneapolis, um, there was a time frame that, you know, you didn't have people of color going to Northeast Minneapolis. Um, the bridge of La the Laurie Bridge is classified as the longest bridge in the world because it connects Africa to Poland. When you talk about Africa being on the north side and you talk about, you know, Poland being on the northeast side and then becoming the principal of a school that still kind of, you know, there's still bits and pieces, you know, these things just don't change overnight, you all, okay? What actually happens is that they're, they're perpetuated and, 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 and there's still remnants that come along. Even though things change, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, some things stay the same until you actually speak about it. And when you start speaking on it and you start bringing it to the attention, then what actually happens is that it starts resonating with people and either there's fear or the acceptance and then you can actually move whatever it is that you need to do. So that being said, um, I just want to say, you know, I, I am just happy um, to be a part of this. And, and the work in which we're doing at Northeast Middle School is basically trying to make sure that we disrupt that, that we then start creating things that are relevant and real for our kids because everybody else is going to benefit. You said, well, Vernon, what do you all do in order to, you know, to do, to do that? Well, one of the things that we do is that we're proud of is that we're the only middle school in the Midwest to teach ethnic studies, only middle school, okay? Now that, that within itself just lets you know that, that that's sad, okay? But based upon that, you know, we, we felt as though that our kids need to understand who they are and we teach it from the perspective of learning who you are, but yet in terms of struggle, usually struggle brings people together. And I want people to understand that, you know, whiteness is something that America created, okay? And what actually has taken place is that Every person that didn't meet this definition of whiteness had to create their sense of becoming a part of that in order to be able to be accepted. Okay, that's why you see all of these books about how the Irish became white, how the Italians became white, how the Polish became white. Okay, well, here's the interesting thing you'll never see a book that says back how the black became white. Okay, not what happened. Okay, and therefore, what happens, you all, is that we need to teach our kids that, but also white kids need to know this stuff as well. We connected with the University of Minnesota College Liberal of Arts, um, Minnesota Youth Story Squad. Okay, and what we do is that as a program and as a project, our kids have to do a digital story on a social justice issue because you got to teach social justice so that you'll know what you need to change and be you know able to understand what it is that you need to change in order to implement the change that needs to happen. So therefore, you all, we are doing those type of things and making building those projects. We're making the community connections on bridging things. If we're going to bridge something, you know, we got to take that 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 stereotype of what that bridge is and make sure that we, you know, build it. So therefore, I know my time is up. I got a whole lot of stuff I'm going to share with you. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'll share it with you all as we go along. Thank you so much. Yeah, Mr. Rowe, it's my bad. You were third, but it was all good. Uh, it works I out. I got cheated. <laughs> So, Ms. Colbert, apologies, uh, but let's hear from you. Uh, what's on your mind? Hi, everybody. Um, hey, no apologies necessary. It, it, it helps me get my thoughts together to hear my fellow panel members, um, you know, talk about 
talk about uh, what is important to them and what they see as important. And Dr. Brewer, I just want to say thank you. And I appreciate you inviting me to be here. Um, I have a lot of admiration for you. I really wish that um, I would have been able to do some studying under you at some point. Um, but we are peers. <laughs> and so you came to the U, I think, probably about the same, probably the year or the year after I, I graduated from the U. So um, I regret that I was never able to, to study with you, but, but thank you for your work. Um, so there's a lot to think about. I mean, I guess from the standpoint of um, an English teacher, uh, the thing that I talk to um, colleagues about um, and pre-service teachers is that I believe that teaching is a political act, period. What you say and what you don't say um, matters and it absolutely contributes to the, the social lens development of, of our students. And keeping in mind the idea that, that you know, you have to really balance that idea with, with your own political agenda, right? Um, I have always been an activist, an activist teacher. I shook hands with a, a white colleague of mine years ago when Lynn Cheney was talking about dangerous educators. And we decided, oh, I like that idea. We're going to be dangerous educators. <laughs> And, and we, you know, have continued in that spirit um, with our pedagogy by providing students with opportunities to really dig in to um, really important social justice issues. In addition to as an English teacher, right, and as an English department with my colleagues, trying to figure out how we can choose um, the kind of, you know, books that they need to read, things that, um, you know, will appeal to them, uh, things that are culturally sustaining. And so, um, you know, as I think about what, what uh, Dr. Luzinski was saying is what did we think would happen? Uh, what we thought would happen, what I thought would happen, happened. And, and that's what we're living right now. And I can get into that a little bit, a little bit more later as we continue with our, with our discussion. But, um, but yeah, what, what we thought would happen, happened. And so um, where do we go from here? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Dr. Bell. Yes. Hello, Dr. Brewer. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being a mentor and an amazing, amazing scholar. I look up to you very much. Thank you. Um, you are welcome. So I've had the opportunity to work in multiple capacities in K-12. And most recently, I am doing a lot of work around consulting. And I'm working with school districts to assist with the development of curricular and instructional um, equity. And I would say that in my work so far, what I have come to understand to be the greatest vehicles for racism in education and inequality of all kinds within education are policies and procedures and curriculum and instruction. Those are the areas that I find to be um, 
the biggest contributors to the status quo of, of education, but they often are overlooked for whatever reason. And so in my work in consulting, I do a lot of the pushing around the policies and procedures that are often not thought about, but absolutely uphold very racist structures and perpetuate racist outcomes. Um, and I also push and um, really, really ask districts to look at the curriculum that is being taught and the ways in which it's being taught, the ways that the educators within the district are being trained, the ways in which um, conversations are being had around um, the experiences of scholars within the district. So when I think about the title of this of this discussion, which is, you know, you've got to be carefully taught, that just affirms the points that I have come to understand, which is that curriculum and instruction are the vehicles of the damage that is taking place in schools. And it's it's not enough to say, as a district, we're going to review what we're doing. No, review is not the issue. There needs to be revision, there needs to be overhaul, there needs to be complete rewriting of curriculums. There need to be way, there need, there need to be things that are done that have never been done in order for outcomes to be different for those who are most disenfranchised. And that's the one role that, that's the role that I know I can play in this capacity is to be the agitator and to, and to bring my perspective and my experiences to the table to say, you know what, I know you may not look at it this way, but this is how I view it. And I think it's worth looking at and talking about and doing something different. I think that that's, I think it's overlooked. And sometimes I think to myself, is that impactful enough to change the ways in which um, scholars are experiencing their education? And then I think to myself, yes, it is because everyone talks about having a seat at the table, but when they get there, they're silent. Well, no, nah, that's uh, that's not my that's not my M.O. When I get to the table, I talk a lot. And I also um, <laughs> I also require that if I'm in the company of someone that they either get on board or I get off board and move around, because at the end of the day, I you, as an emancipatory educator, you really cannot afford to be affiliated with institutions that uphold the disenfranchisement of children. Um, and at this point in my life, I'm a free agent because of that. And so um, that's my two cents, Dr. Brewer. Oh, excellent, excellent. Uh, we're going to uh, get a little bit more granular with this. And again, starting with uh, Dr. Uh, Lazinski, uh, would you speak uh, to the whole struggle uh, that has been going on around um, ethnic studies in Minnesota and how uh, some of the successes recently uh, shift the educational terrain for our students? Yeah, certainly. And, and you know, thank you again to everybody on this panel. I think um, all of all of you are just like all the points you're making are really resonating, you know, in, um, in 1920. Uh, the Universal Negro Improvement Association and their Declaration of Negro Rights said that every Negro child should be taught Negro history to their benefit, right, a over 100 years ago, and we have not been able to fulfill that one, one demand, <laughs> right? And so that's what undergirds the struggle for ethnic studies 
and for black educational rights um, in the context of Minnesota. And so this is not a new struggle. It's a struggle that's been going on in the state for, for I mean, we can point back to 50 years ago with the, with the creation of the Afro Studies Department at the U and that that came out of struggle and protest on the campus and, uh, and that, the, the, pro, and that the, the department was created in the right way by merging and bringing in community experts and community educators who had been doing uh, black educational history and, uh, and education for, for, for decades, right? And so, so we know that this struggle is protracted, it's entrenched, and it's something that will continue. Um, but as Robin D.G. Kelly says, right, black freedom goes along with black, or sorry, black freedom goes along with black study, right? And so, and so the two can't be delinked from each other. Um, so right now what's happening in the context of, of ethnic studies is again, another, uh, and I like to you know, say that they are just uh, iterations, right? You see, they'll bubble up above the surface. I think we're seeing another bubble that's happening right now because there's an ethnic studies coalition that's been formed and it's uh, joined with organizations representing Pan-African, Pan-Asian, Pan-American um, and indigenous organizations um, that have been coming together to again, demand that the state does right by students of color by actually and not, and that's again, just students of color, all students, because we're educating and turning out ignorant and ignorant population that continues to then perpetuate the kinds of policies that, that Dr. Bell's talking about, right? And so um, right now we, are have, we have people who are on uh, the Minnesota um, Social Studies State Standards Committee um, who are doing the work of trying to change the social studies standards for the next 10 years. Uh, and embed ethnic studies as a central, not just an add-on, because that's how we always do it. We make everything, you know, it's just an elective credit, an add-on, something that we could do in our free time, in our spare time, if you get to it, right? But to make it a central component that then schools who do not, uh, who are not teaching uh, African-American history and, and culture are, will be out, not in compliance, at least with the state. And that doesn't guarantee that our districts are doing these things, but it does open up a space for, um, for again, maybe it's litigation or maybe it's just a way to, to flag and say, okay, here are the districts who are not doing, because right now that's the problem is you could be erasing your uh, students of color uh, history and experience in school and be totally in compliance, right? And that's part of the problem. Um, and, and so that's one of the efforts. Another effort is to try to create a house bill that would demand uh, ethnic studies as a graduation requirement for every Minnesota student across the state. Again, and, and so these are, these are the efforts that are happening right now. Um, they're being led by, uh, again, a coalition of, of organizations and, um, and it's coming out of, again, decades of struggle that we can continue to point back to. And so it's not just people deciding to do things after, uh, you know, after George Floyd was brutally murdered, right? George Floyd allowed for a flashpoint for people to then come back together to, to, um, to, to lift up the struggles that had been going on. So I, I, I think I'm at time, so I'll stop, I'll stop there. Great, thank you, uh, Brian. Uh, Ms. Colbert, uh, you participated in the theater arts in your career and now teach English at uh, Central High School. What are students asking for in the wake of the recent uprisings and how do you respond in your teaching? So um, 
you know, given given the the situation that we're in with distance learning, it, we're in distance learning in St. Paul. Um, students are not necessarily asking directly right now, but I want to go back to the summer when on Twitter and on Instagram there were um, a lot of students who were calling out calling out schools, calling out teachers, um, and talking about, you know, for instance, my, my, my friend's son is like black at Benilde, right? So there was a real movement for, of students talking about what is it like to be black in private and public schools? Mm -hmm. And so um, while I have not found that my students are directly asking me for things, um, when I, when I started the school year, I tried to keep in mind that they were asking these things over the summer. And these are not new issues. These are issues that, that have been, at least at Central High School, these are issues that have been um, going on for my whole 20 some years of, of teaching. And so, and so, you know, what I, have been trying to figure out is, you know, how, how do I address that? But also how do I even enter into that conversation when so many of, um, so many of my students are just struggling with the day-to-day -day issues of, of distance learning and, and trying to keep up with work and um, trying to figure out, you know, how how to just, you know, get do schoolwork and be in a classroom, you know, that's virtual and not see and not see students. Um, the the I, I think that the the solution that I've or not the solution, but but what I have come up with is that the adults really have to ha have to have some very good and honest conversations. And as as I meet with my colleagues about career. Uh, curriculum right like what we're going to do um in in our class in our classes um those are the conversations that that we try to have at the same time right so we can't get books so we're going to teach we're going to teach um the piano lesson because it's because we can get it online so how do we use that you know as as um a way to give the students what we need. How do we teach that play in a way that it gives the students what they need and hopefully touches on how they might be feeling about the current, the current um, climate, you know? Um, interestingly enough, uh, we have been asked um, by some of the, the adults in the, in the school, our leadership, why would you teach that? Because um, it has the the N word in it, and so um, you know that's another that's another challenge, right? But I'm like, if you teach Shakespeare, you should teach August Wilson, <laughs> right? Um, and we can get into more of that later. My time is up, but those are my thoughts. Thank you, Mr. Rowe. Uh, you deal with a somewhat younger group of uh, middle schoolers. Um, you know, with your young people, um, how is social justice infused? I know that's your deal, but how is it infused? You uh, mentioned it briefly, but uh, maybe you can say more 
And what do middle schoolers need to know about social justice? Well, I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you, Dr. Brewer. Um, middle school students know a whole lot more than some adults know, okay? And the fact of the matter is, is that they're gonna keep it real and authentic with you because they don't have filters. And, and that is the best way that you can institute change and also get into the mindsets of, 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 of our young people to not only just you know, you know, think about what you see, but also do the research that needs to be done in order to do so. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that I personally believe that this is an opportune time um, to be able to address those things. And, and I feel as though that what we do and is that we forced to change, okay? If, if, you, if you want to have a Northeast kid come to your school, you better offer these programs. And, 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 and therefore, you know, our kids going and asking, what are you gonna do about this, okay? How are you gonna make this change for us? And we build that, you know, that, that, that tenacity within our kids that when they come in, it's like, well, we don't think that this is right. That's not what they did at Northeast. And you all may need to jump on the bandwagon, give you my case in point. Um, we went after our indigenous people um, because th what actually happened in Minneapolis was that um, Anishinaabe actually decided that they were going to go from a K-8 school to a K-5 school. And I thought it was a great idea. And the reason that it was a great idea is because usually most of your K-8s don't get the, the variety in classes that middle schools actually offer. Okay, so what actually happens is that Anishinaabe was a citywide school. With it being a citywide school, you had kids that lived on the north side, and you had kids that lived on the south side. Now, everything on the on the south side is kind of aimed and directed for your native, or you know, your native students and 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 what they have. That's where their resources are. But you go over to the north side, there are no resources. There used to be one that was called, you know, Four Direction, and you know, God rest, you know, um, John Bakanage who created that who I actually spoke out and gave people, not only just indigenous people, but everybody that was on the North side, because the North side, you all, is the hub, man. And everybody takes care of everybody there, okay? People could talk about it, but the North side knocks it out the box when it comes to everybody supporting one another, all right? So I just want y'all to understand that. But the fact of the matter was, was that when we brought our kids over, we had to give them programming. And one of the things that we did was that we said, we're gonna make sure that they have, you know, um, Ojibwe and Dakota language. So they can get back to the roots of what made them who they were, right? Okay. Well, if you want our students, Edison Middle School, uh, Edison High School, you know, and you said that you do because that's my feeder school, well, you're going to have to come up with the program. They came up with making sure that there was Ojibwe offered at, at Edison for our kids that, you know, want to practice that because, you know, the, the Ojibwe language just wasn't for, you know, our native kids to service them, it was to service all of our kids. So if you were gonna do that, you had to make sure you had that. So we're gonna force the change. And we're gonna to continue to force the change. And the reality you all is this, okay? I see that my, I'm really getting close to my time. Man, I, I, I could talk to y'all all day, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that when you start forcing the change, things will change for you, especially for kids. And then having kids give them that voice and they will make the changes for you as well. So that being said, I'm gonna be quiet and let somebody else speak. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Bell, um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, you, you've gone the gamut from, uh, from K through 12 to uh, college and been an administrator, and now you're sharing your knowledge through consulting. What's the, and you referenced a bit of this, but uh, what's the top priority for you regarding educating our children uh, for deep change and ensuring that schools make social justice manifest, not just, you know, asserting it, but making it manifest. My number one priority is educating educators. 
who have been miseducated and undereducated. Um, I think that's the that's my greatest priority. Um, as someone who is an emancipatory educator and who practiced in a culturally responsive way when it was not popular, um, I believe that I have a lot to offer to educators and administrators alike. I think that there, there's this understanding of the autonomy that educators and administrators have, but it's almost like a popular scapegoat to forget that autonomy. And I think one of the greatest things that I'm able to do in the consulting role is to remind people of their autonomy, to remind them of their liberty to do what is right by children, to remind administrators and leaders of the autonomy that they have to create policies and procedures and ways of being within their organization that are in alignment with anti-racist pedagogy. Um, to remind educators that when that when that classroom door shuts, that ultimately at the end of the day, it's you and those children. And you really have a lot of space and room to teach them in a way that is going to liberate their minds and free them of the epistemological oppression that they experience on a daily basis. So, you know, those are the type of, and, and a lot of it starts with conversations. Mm -hmm. um, I'm often surprised at how many people I talk to in the, in the format of like professional development or co consultative conversations who say to me that they are, that they didn't think the way that I've thought of the, of the particular topic or they've never heard it referenced that way. Even when you talk about cultural responsiveness, there's so many misnomers around what it is and how it's applied and what it means. And I think that the biggest issue is that there's this perspective that it can be, it can be, you that one can be culturally responsive without being humanistic in their thinking when without being human centered in their actions. And that that's the biggest misnomer. And so just having those conversations with people to kind of break down the miseducation and to re-educate is one of the gifts that I um, enjoy about consulting. So, and I would say that one of the areas, I, I am looking forward to the opportunity to not only consult, but to move into a school leadership role because of the fact that I know the autonomy that school administrators have, and I want to have the opportunity to practice it. And, uh, and of course, it'll be unpopular, but that's okay, because uh, I wasn't popular as an educator. I mean, not amongst my peers, but, you know, the babies love me, and that's all that mattered, and, and, and the results were there. And so it's really just about really motivating people to understand the power that they have to do what is right and making it clear that what is right is not up for debate. I think that it's, it, it's too popular at this point in public education and just education as a whole to think that what is right is debatable. It's not debatable. And people just have to align themselves with doing what is right for children by any cost. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we do have uh, a few audience questions. Our time is moving along, but uh, maybe we can uh, lift up a couple of them. Uh, 
And um, if people would weigh in, if the, if the spirit moves you, uh, but one of the ones that um, I'll put out uh, to our panelists, um, what aspects of classroom make it most likely to positively influence social lens and go on uh, to extend that to social lens as pro-community, all in this together, especially when message from home, national leadership, maybe me first. I'll repeat it one more time. Those aspects of classroom that make it most likely to positively influence social lens as pro-community, all in this together, especially when the message from home national leadership may be, quote, me first. Anyone wanna respond to that, tackle that particular question? I can, but. Go right ahead, Dr. Bell. Um, I would say that going back to my point again, it's the curriculum and instruction. What is taught and how it's taught are the greatest um, I think two of the greatest um, contributing factors to developing the social lens of scholars in the classroom. Like literally you can help is because I believe that it's not about teaching them what to think, but how to think and what you assign, what you, the questions that you ask as an educator, the assignments that you give, the way that you assess the learning of your scholars, all of those are aspects where educators have a lot of autonomy and they can really be very open and student-centered in what they present. And I think that a lot of educators may think, well, how, how on earth am I supposed to know what is important to my scholars or what they want to learn about? Well, um, unpopular opinion, you ask them and then you actually apply what they tell you. And that's what cultural responsiveness is. You put out the call and when they respond, you respond accordingly and it becomes a conversation of learning. And I think that they'll, so as I said, going back to those two points, what you teach, how you teach it, the questions that you ask and the assignments that you give are really strong vehicles for shaping the social lens of, of scholars. Mm-hmm. Any, anybody else want to weigh on, in on that? I have a couple of more uh, to, put out there. I'd like to weigh in real quickly and just sort of echo what, what Dr. Bell is saying that, you know, as, a, a, as a, a classroom teacher, I knew early on, plus I have the support of a, a veteran um, administrator who was black, right? But I learned early on that you do what you need to do and you apologize later if something happens. And, and there, I think that, you know, too many, too many of us who are in the classroom are afraid to do that. Right. And I agree. You ask the students what they want, but you are the professional. So, you know, like read some books, apply, apply what you, you apply the pedagogy that you're reading about to what they want to learn and, and then, and then, you know, teach them, right? Like guide them through, what does it mean to be a critical thinker? Guide them through, what does it mean to have a voice and put your voice, you know, into your classroom community, build a classroom community so that you get away from that individualist kind of thinking. Um, 
yeah, I don't, I think that, that you just, you just have to do it. You have to take, 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 be courageous and, and, and do what you know that has to be done. Indeed. Uh, I have a multi-part, relatively long question. Uh, so I'll break it up. Uh, and this also uh, ties into some of the points that have already been made. Uh, but uh, given that we may be dealing with the pandemic for quite a long time, how can uh, we uh, shape learning uh, to a more child-centered mode? And I know that has been addressed to some extent. So that's the first part of the question. Um, the fact that we'll likely be in the pandemic for quite a long time and how can we uh, better ad adapt uh, the situation to a child-centered mode. Uh, also, how can school buildings be reconceptualized from the current ones whose legacy is when capitalist industrialists imagine a system that would train up a docile workforce to today's need for engaged, participatory, and creative workers? Brian, that sounds like something that you opened up with uh, in terms of really understanding the social system we're operating on. Does that, uh, that second part of the question, uh, how can school buildings be, be reconceptualized from the current ones whose legacy is when capitalist industrials imagine a system that would train up a docile workforce? Yeah, and, and this goes, you know, it goes right back to the heart of Black education, particularly the work of um, Black women educators like Fanny Jackson Coppin and Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, Anna Julia Cooper, who were arguing back, and this is again over a century ago, uh, trying to create holistic models of education that dealt with both um, and, and, you know, we get this false, false debate of uh, W.B. Du Bois versus Booker T. Out Washington about industrial versus uh, classical education when black women were actually engaged in doing both. Also in the context of political economy education. So Fanny Jackson Coppin was was teaching black women to engage in, uh, you know, things that we might consider as like industrial education, vocational education. But she was also teaching them about economics and how to engage in microeconomics, how to, uh, and, and so we see, these, we see these demonstrations across time when we look at black educators, we look at, for instance, peop, uh, folks in like the Georgia Educators Network. These, again, these are black educators who are working across state lines, working across county lines, exchanging curriculum, exchanging ideas, and basically because they were left out of the white unions, Right. And so they were finding solidarity with each other, but not just labor solidarity. They were finding uh, curricular and intellectual solidarity with each other in their projects. And so this is you know, tied directly back to the previous question about how do we get out of the modes of in, uh, individualism. But it's also tied, I think, to this question. It does, I, I don't know. Maybe someone else can, can talk more to the student center piece. But I just want to put that out there. Yeah, I was going to I was going to call on uh, Principal Rowe. Yeah, I was going to call on Principal Rowe, <laughs> uh, especially around uh, this piece. Uh, uh, how do we concept reconceptualize school buildings? And I I'm assuming that you've given some thought to that, uh, perhaps at uh, your middle school. And the pandemic didn't cause it, okay? You know, I I'm gonna be honest with you all, okay? How we've done education, you know, for so long hasn't worked for 
everybody, okay? We know that it hasn't worked for people of color. We we truly know that it hasn't worked for African-American folks, right? Okay, but the fact of the matter is that it hasn't worked for white folks either, okay? And therefore, you all, I, you know, I come from sales and marketing, okay? So therefore, you know, when you create a situation, I look for the opportunities within that situation, right? And I personally believe that this is an excellent opportunity for us to be able to revamp and, you know, and, and transform what we want to see in education right now. And I'm going to give you an example. Now, I stole this from somebody because, you know, I like stealing other people's words and then it makes me look like I'm like super knowledgeable, okay? But the whole point here, you all, is that what actually, you know, I, I heard Dr. Patina Love say something. And what she sat back and she said was that, you know, education was talking about the things we couldn't do until the pandemic came along, right? And when the pandemic came along, those very things that we said that we couldn't do, we had to do. And all of a sudden money and all kinds of resources just became available because those things were incapable for us to do, but we had to do them because the, the, the time called for it, okay? Well, the time has been calling for that we do some transformation. The time has been, you know, has called that, you know, our existing institution of education needed to change, okay? So I'm one of those that sits back and said, you know, I don't look at the class half empty. I look at it as half full, but I'm just happy that there's something in it so that therefore we can start utilizing the things that we need to do. We need to sit back and we need to make sure that we're teaching things from a, a, a cultural, you know, competency and, 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 and relational type of educational, you know, process so that our, our teachers will understand that they have a responsibility to make sure that our kids understand what it is that they're presenting and that things are that they present have them in mind. So I'm just looking at opportunities based upon just that, that we knew well before the epidemic, you know, for the, before the pandemic, but now it gives us the opportunity to be intentional in terms of being able to do it and for them to take the time to start learning about it from their kids, because the kids can offer you a whole lot of information that you need to get from them because they're sitting back and they're watching us. So that's kind of like my game plan. Yeah. I, I think that I kind of answered it a little bit, but I'm just like, hey, man, I'm looking at this as, as an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Miss Miss Colbert, you'd already gotten uh, into uh, some of the challenges around uh, remote learning and that kind of thing. Was there anything about that question that uh, moved you uh, in any way, shape or form? We're very close to uh, having to bring this to a close, but I'm wondering, uh, did you want to add anything to uh, that? Yeah, I'll keep it quick. You know, Dr. Bell was talking about, um, you know, doing school, doing school differently. And, and I agree. I think that the whole system needs to be really re revamped. It, it just does. We cannot do school the way we do. And what I have discovered as a classroom teacher is that we have some models that are popping up, you know, as um, Mr. Rowe said, we have some models that are popping up that can at least maybe get us on the road to something different. At Central, we used to do a straight seven period day, right? We went from six period to seven period, which cut my classroom time down with my students to 43 minutes. I don't, I, I don't, I want more time with my students. Right now in distance learning, I have an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. It's once a week, which is not ideal, but it's lovely, right? Like I have time with the students. And with our office hours, the way we do it, I also then have time for one-to-one one -one meetings. So we are discovering some really good things that, that I think will definitely, definitely help contribute to um, 
you know, better, better student learning, whether or not we continue with that, I guess it remains to be seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I just want to say uh, this has been really incredible in terms of a conversation that needs to continue. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, many of the ideas that have been placed on uh, the table this evening uh, can be followed through and carried through. Um, I know work is already beginning uh, in that direction and maybe we can reconvene again uh, for a part two. Uh, I don't know how to show deep appreciation on Zoom, but for the listening audience, for the viewing audience, can we give our panelists a Zoom, <laughs> I don't know, a Zoom uh, appreciation, uh, appreciation for their commitment, appreciation for their creativity and insight, uh, appreciation for being there for uh, our young uh, people. We certainly have a road ahead. And as uh, Dr. King said uh, so eloquently, uh, there are gonna be some difficult days ahead. Uh, but it's going to take all of us to do what we need to do for our students, uh, for uh, this society, and for the planet. So thank you all so very much. And I'm going to turn it uh, back over to Megan, uh, who I believe is going to close us out. Yes, and thank you so much, Professor Brewer, and to all of our panelists for joining us tonight and engaging in such a wonderful and really thought-provoking conversation. And to everyone watching online, over 100 of you tonight, thank you for joining this roundtable event. I hope you're signing off um, inspired to take action and um, just move forward. And this event has been brought to you by the College of Liberal Arts, where we are reimagining the 21st century liberal arts experience. As a diverse, energetic community of students, faculty, staff, alumni, and donors, we seek to make a difference at home and throughout the world. And together we are shattering expectations of what a liberal arts college can be. The upcoming What's Next Roundtable will be held on December 3rd at 12 o'clock p.m. Central Time and we'll discuss transformation in policing for Minneapolis. You can learn more about this event at z.umn.edu slash CLA What's Next, all one word, no apostrophe. So thank you so much again for joining us. Thanks to Professor Brewer for moderating and to all of our panelists. Stay well and have a wonderful evening. Good night.